from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. We are back from our summer break. The month of August is coming to a close, which means it's time for another News Roundup episode. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Miskwitziwiskaigen, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed over the past month. For our first headline, I've got the rundown on the ramp up of a copper and gold mine in British Columbia that was the cause of a late contamination disaster back in 2014. On the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia lies Quinell Lake, distant relative of the Quinell Bridge in Edmonton. Just kidding. But it is the major tributary of the Fraser River. Quinell Lake is a glacial lake or fjord, a long narrow body of water that reaches far inland. Mount Poli is an open pit copper and gold mine that includes an underground component that is adjacent to the western arm of the Quinell Lake. According to Imperial Metals, the company that owns Mount Poli Mine website, the property encompasses over 20,000 hectares, comprising seven mining leases, totaling over 2,000 hectares, and 46 mineral claims encompassing over 18,000 hectares. In 2014, a disaster occurred at the Mount Poli mine. In the early morning hours of August 4th, 2014, a tailings dam failure resulted in the loss of approximately 17 million cubic meters of water and 8 million cubic meters of tailings and materials into Poli Lake, Hazeltine Creek, and Quinell Lake. This spill resulted in significant impacts that have been long-lasting. In May of this year, eight years after the Tailings Dam failure occurred, a study was published in the academic journal Environmental Science and Pollution Research 
that showed small invertebrates taken from the water of both Poli Lake and Quinell Lake had higher concentrations of copper and other metals than invertebrates sampled from unaffected lakes. One of the authors, Gregory Pyle from University of Lethbridge, stated in an interview with CBC that, quote, when you exceed the nutrient requirement for copper, copper becomes very toxic to aquatic organisms, so it affects the animal's growth and survival in the system, end quote. Pyle emphasized the scale of the Mount Poli mine disaster, stating that heavy metals, such as the ones spilled into Poli and Quinell lakes, will stay in the lake water essentially forever, unless they are flushed out or transported somewhere else, but doing so can also worsen water contamination. According to Pyle, dredging up the sediments and metals released during the spill would be, quote, an impossible task, end quote. Hazeltine Creek, which was also affected by the spill, served as a drinking water source as well as spawning grounds for sockeye salmon. So, what happened after the spill in 2014? When the spill happened, an emergency response was undertaken by the province of British Columbia, and a pollution abatement order under the Environmental Management Act was put into place the following day. August 5th, 2014, to reduce the discharge, undertake environmental impact assessment of the contaminant breach, and implement remediation. In 2019, according to an Imperial Metals news release, operations at Mount Poli Mine were suspended in January 2019 due to declining copper prices. The mine was put into a maintenance status and according to the company's website, remediation work in the Mount Poli mine area is ongoing. Earlier this year, disciplinary actions were made against three engineers who were involved in the Mount Poli mine disaster, with engineers and geoscientists British Columbia bringing a collective fine of over $200,000 against two engineers and a brief suspension and required training for the third engineer. Mining Watch Canada, an advocacy group for environmental and social responsibility in the mining industry, has criticized these fines and actions as being too lenient, and points out that the company that owns Polymine, Imperial Metals, has faced no discipline from Canadian governments and has had both lawsuits against the company quashed. Now, despite this disaster and the ceasing of operations at the mine in 2019, Imperial Metals is moving to resuming operations at the mine. Drilling and blasting has been taking place at the mine as it prepares to ramp up to full production, and about 4.5 million tons has already been mined between November 2001 and March 2022. After the tailings pond spill, the mine had to apply to the province for amendments to their permits to restart operations. The amendments were required due to changes to the tailings facility design and management. For their current restart plan, Imperial Metals notified government regulators last year of their intentions to start up the mine again. And because the company intends to restart operations within the mine plan that has already been approved, no additional approvals are needed under the Mines Act. However, the mine does need to apply to extend its permit to discharge mine waste into Quinell Lake. 
They are looking to extend their permit to 2025. According to the Ministry of Environment, a decision on whether the company will be granted this extension will be made by the end of the year. Now, this does not affect the mine's ability to restart production, just their ability to discharge waste into Quinell Lake. Members of the Concerned Citizens of Quinell Lake group are participating in an appeal of the discharge permit, stating that the lake is one of the largest salmon-producing watersheds in the world, and that the discharge into the lake should be at least drinking water quality by the time it hits the lake waters. The decision for the appeal is set to be heard in May 2023, likely after the government regulators make their decision on whether or not to extend Imperial Metals' current discharge permit to 2025. Beyond the residents that live at Quinell Lake, the mine is also located in the territories of Williams Lake First Nation and Hatsuth Nation. Williams Lake First Nation signed a renewed participation agreement with Imperial Metals in July to ensure that they have a say in the project. Hatsuth Nation and Imperial Metals have not yet reached a renewed agreement. We will keep an eye on how the story progresses and we'll let you know of any further developments. For our next headline, we've got a story about some scorching summer weather. Here is Sonic Patel to tell us about melting transportation infrastructure in the city of London. Hello listeners. In this next segment, we're covering a headline that's a little bit older, but one that definitely hits pretty close to home. After the heat of this summer. Alberta is far from the only place that's been dealing with extreme heat exacerbated by climate change. The United Kingdom has been dealing with a lot of extreme heat this summer, with pretty severe consequences. One of these is the cancellation of rail lines, like the East Coast Line between Edinburgh and London. And why? Well, recall your grade school science class. When substances get warmer, they expand. And railways, like most things, are substances. But because the expansion of the rail is restrained, The thermal expansion of the steel causes buckling, creating kinks in the rail, a major safety concern. Railway kinks in the United Kingdom cause about 50 derailments a year, and warmer temperatures trigger precautionary measures to reduce speeds when it gets too hot. Heat can also damage electric trains by causing overhead wires to sag. As you might imagine, these impacts can have huge economic and social consequences 
from delays and the cost of repair and replacement to the rails, let alone the human costs of a potential derailment of a passenger train. We have developed ways to adapt to heat in rail systems, such as painting rails white, which can reduce the temperature, and leaving gaps to allow for expansion in hot weather. But many lines are not equipped for the new average temperatures due to climate change. The cost and the time required to replace all rail infrastructure in the United Kingdom is immense. The heat wave also caused a suspension of flights after temperatures caused a runway defect, though this was only for a few hours. The Royal Air Force also halted flights out of one of their stations because the runway melted. In Lincolnshire, surface temperatures over 50 degrees Celsius caused roads to melt and to rise and crack. The July heat wave caused record temperatures, hitting 40 degrees Celsius for the first time in recorded history in the United Kingdom. Prior to the heat wave in July, the country experienced a heat wave in June, and another one in August. So, not a good sign for the future safety of the transportation sector. As climate change continues and intensifies, the way we move, and indeed the way we live, is threatened. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sonic. Speaking of scorching summer temperatures, this next story is about a severe heat wave in China that is impacting people and industry in the country, and one that could also have global repercussions. parts of China, people have been experiencing a heat wave for a period of two months. According to an article in New Scientist, hundreds of locations within China have reported temperatures of over 40 degrees Celsius, and many temperature records have been broken. On August 18th, the temperature in Chongqing in Sichuan province reached 45 degrees Celsius the highest temperature recorded in China outside of its desert region. On August 20th, the recorded low temperature for the day was 34.9 degrees Celsius. This has been the longest and hottest heat wave in China since national record-keeping began in 1961. This heat wave has been paired with low rainfall levels in parts of the country, resulting in low river levels, and 66 rivers have dried up completely. In certain locations, 
local water supplies have been depleted, and drinking water is now having to be brought in by truck. On August 19th, China announced a national drought alert for the first time in nine years. The record-breaking heat wave is also affecting power and crop yields. Hydroelectric generation has fallen due to low water levels. Areas that are especially affected include the Sichuan province, which normally gets 80% of its electricity through hydropower. Factories across the country have had to stop operations because of electricity shortages and high demand for air conditioning. In Sichuan alone, 47,000 acres of crops are being reported as lost, and over another 400,000 acres are reported as being damaged. Lower crop yields in China, as well as in other areas of the globe that are currently facing droughts, could worsen the global food crisis. China has stated that they will be seeding clouds to generate rain in an attempt to protect its grain harvest. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, Edmonton's campus and community radio station that is powered by volunteers. In this week's episode, we are rounding up the environmental news headlines that you may have missed over the past month. So far, we have heard about melting transportation infrastructure in London, a heat wave in China, and an activity update on Mount Poli Mine in British Columbia. Our next couple of headlines are all about the animals. First up, Here is a not-so-good story about backyard chickens and their eggs, or more so, what can be in their eggs. If you are a person who keeps backyard chickens, new research out of Australia will be of interest to you. Yazdan Prest and colleagues have found that lead levels in backyard hens' eggs contain, on average, more than 40 times the lead levels of commercial eggs. Almost half of the hens in the study had significant levels in their blood, and most importantly, about half of the eggs analyzed in the study contained lead levels that could pose health risks to consumers. It should be noted that the World Health Organization has stated that no amount of lead is safe, as lead exposure can result in harm to heart, brain, and kidney function. However, the researchers also gave a way to determine if your hens and their eggs may be at risk. Backyard hens got the lead into their systems 
by scratching at the dirt and pecking at it to get food off the ground, as the amount of lead in the hen's systems was significantly associated with the amount of lead in the soil. They also found possible other lead sources from contaminated drinking water or commercial feed supplies, but they have not been deemed a significant source of exposure. Older inner city homes are at greater risk as their age and placement can increase the possibility of the soil being contaminated with lead. The recommended food safety threshold for lead exposure is 20 micrograms per kilogram in the chicken's blood, which was determined to require a soil concentration of less than 166 milligrams per kilogram. This study is important because it comes at a time when individuals are moving to urban gardening or producing their own food as grocery prices increase in many countries. But studies show that caution needs to be taken when people are trying to produce their own food, as plants, honeybees, and now chickens have all been found to accumulate contaminants that may be in the soil. The struggles of finding participants for studies such as these also mean that studies are small and cannot always look at every possible exposure route. Thus, our knowledge of how safe backyard gardening and animal care can be is limited. Listeners who may want to or have been involved in backyard gardening and animal care should strongly consider get getting their soil tested through commercial laboratories. Knowing what areas of your backyard are problematic can mean that soil can be replaced or animals and plants can be kept in these safer areas, allowing for peace of mind when consuming vegetables, honey, or eggs that may come from your garden. final headline, a good news story about increasing salmon populations in some BC rivers. Commercial fishers and wild salmon advocates are currently celebrating huge returns of sockeye and pink salmon to British Columbia rivers. Mitch Dudeward, who has worked in the salmon industry for more than 40 years, says that, quote, this is the best season I can recall in my lifetime, end quote. At the same time, Bob Chamberlain, chairman of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, says pink salmon are coming back to central coast rivers in the thousands after years of minimal returns. This amazingly productive season comes two years after two open net Atlantic salmon farms were closed in the area after being targeted by Bob Chamberlain and the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Chamberlain claims that, quote, 
we got them removed, and two years later, we went from 200 fish in the river to where we have several thousand to date. In our mind and knowledge, that is a really good indicator, end quote. Fisheries and Oceans Canada, also known as DFO, spokesperson Laura Sloan says that the department had observed indications of large returns of salmon to the Skeena River via test fisheries. Sloan has said that, quote, test fisheries currently indicate that Skeena sockeye returns are tracking at the upper end of the forecast, with an in-season estimate of approximately 4 million sockeye, end quote. When compared to the five-year average return of sockeye at 1.4 million and the 10-year average return at 1.7 million, these numbers are astounding. While some fishers, including Dudaward, claim that the salmon season could have gone on even longer since, quote, there's still plenty of them to take, end quote, Sloan says that the DFO are being careful of salmon stocks. Quote, for 2022, the department is taking a more precautionary approach towards managing impacts of commercial fisheries on stocks of conservation concern, including smaller wild sockeye populations, end quote. This strong return has sparked debate over the future of open net salmon farming in BC waters. Open net salmon farms involve large cages or nets placed in coastal waters that contain hundreds of thousands of fish. The concern is then that waste from these facilities, including deadly pathogens, parasites, and pollutants, are then released into nearby waterways, which are usually right in salmon migration routes or rearing grounds. In 2018, the BC government, First Nations, and the salmon farming industry agreed to phase out 17 open net farms in the Broughton Archipelago over four years, starting in 2019 and ending in 2023. This agreement was meant to establish a farm-free migration corridor to help reduce harm to wild salmon and boost populations. In June, Federal Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray said that the consultations with salmon farm operations and First Nations communities of the Discovery Islands would commence concerning the future of open net farming in the area. The final decision on the future of these farms is expected in January of 2023. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out to Sonic Patel and Tiana Barber Cross for contributing stories this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes. To get in touch with us, you can send us an email to terra at cgsr.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.